Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental and social justice stories from Australia and around the world. This show was produced on Gunai Kurnai land in conjunction with 3CR on the Wurundjeri people's land in the Kulin Nation, where sovereignty has never been ceded, and broadcast around the continent on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Phil Evans, and I'm glad you could join me for the show. Today on the show, we'll be taking a look at war and its effect on the environment, and in particular, taking a look at Palestine and the current situation in Gaza. This land is for those who respect it. This land is for those who love it. You know, the process of colonization has made it possible for the exploitation of resources, the exploitation of land. And the climate justice movement also, I believe, is essentially a land-back movement. Wells once said, if we don't end war, war will end us. As true as it was back in 1936, it is still true today. And whilst the human cost of war is undeniable, not too often considered is the environmental damage that comes with it. The situation in Gaza is tragic, and it is the latest chapter in what has been a long and brutal history. Unequivocally, the war must stop. Deaths on any side are unnecessary, and the death toll must stop rising. And I think that's something we can all agree on. For the love of Earth, for the love of humanity, please, we need a ceasefire now. In Gaza, in the Ukraine, but also in Afghanistan, the Central African Republic, Ethiopia, Libya, Malia, Somalia, South Sudan and Syria, where forgotten or largely ignore wars still wage. Militarism and war perpetuate mutually reinforcing oppressions of colonialism, sexism, cis-heteronormativity, ableism, capitalism, racism, quite well-known afflictions to human beings. But as it does this, it damages the environment through contamination with chemicals and radiation, uh, through clearing land and destroying habitat for bases, with training and for war operations, and it contributes disproportionately to climate change. In short, war is bad for people, but also the planet. Today on the show, we'll draw from a recently run webinar co-hosted by ActionAid, Democracy in Colour, Extinction Rebellion, Free Palestine Melbourne, Friends of the Earth, The Muslim Collective and 350.org titled Solidarity with Palestine, Land and Climate Justice. It featured several speakers who we'll get to know along the way. And I also had a conversation with Elise West from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. So it's an action-packed show with some very serious issues. This is Earth Matters. In 2013, Friends of the Earth International, in conjunction with the local Palestinian group, produced a report that detailed some of the environmental impacts of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. The report is titled Environmental Nakba. The most visible parts of the Israeli occupation, such as roads, military installations, settlements, are mostly off-limits to Palestinians. However, as the examples in the report show, occupation also comprises a host of less visible practices of colonisation. Such practices may be seen to constitute not only environmental crimes, but also the systemic colonisation and ethnic cleansing of Palestine. 
The concept of environmental nakba puts environmental justices rightly in the context of the widest social injustices and human rights violations suffered by the Palestinian people under the Israeli occupation, which began in the 1940s. When Israel was created, 418 villages were completely erased and its inhabitants were forced to seek refuge in the, the closest place possible. That's Rehab Charida, a digital storyteller, filmmaker and producer from the Sasaf Safad region in northern Palestine. So most people in Gaza come from areas from the Gaza region, actually. Historically, the Gaza region extends beyond the Gaza Strip that you see today on the map. It's been 75 years. We call it the ongoing Nakba, Arabic for catastrophe. And that's the word we use to refer to the events of 1948. Since then, there's been one massacre after another, and most Israeli policies have been aimed at the erasure of the Palestinian people. So to confiscate as much land as possible with as little Palestinians on that land as possible. And so what's happening in Gaza at the moment and what has been happening for the last month can't be seen as an isolated incident. It didn't start in, on October 7th. This has been part of an ongoing policy by Israel to ethnically cleanse Palestinians, to uh, remove Palestinians from their land. I think it is important to note, you know, not all Jews are Israelis, not all Israelis are Jews, not all Jews are Zionists, not all Zionists are right wing, and not all Israelis support their government's actions. And that's Pablo Brait, a Jewish campaigner and community organiser who's been fighting for climate justice against coal and gas expansions for well over 15 years. And he raises an important point that is often overlooked when discussing this issue. We're talking about the actions of the government, not making generalisations of people. In Palestinian culture, we, we see ourselves as serving the land um, because it's, it's what gives life. You know, the process of colonisation has made it possible for the exploitation of resources, the exploitation of lands, and has basically destroyed many of the old ways of the old world, which were the antithesis of colonial society, where land is not seen as real estate, where land is not owned, but rather it is served. And this links us back to a very familiar theme for all Australians, and that's one of colonisation. Palestinian activist and artist Asil Tayar continues on that point. This land is Palestinian, and this space, it's for those who respect it, those who know how to deal with it, those who know the million kind of different kinds of soils and what is good for what. That's starting with the basic one. I'm not trying to even making any political. I'm making it the basic. This land is for those who respect it. This land is for those who love it. This land for those who don't run to airports. There's for those who stay on it, refusing to leave it. Once we fix that as a basic question to those answers and those kind of comments, everything else can be solved. That's that's my very basic explanation to what we are doing here. That's a statement that this land is only for those who respect it and those who take care of it. If people really had that connection to land, they wouldn't destroy it. So... During the years of the construction of the separation fence in the West, a lot of villages had their farmland appropriated or cut off from the village by the separation wall. That's Danya Jacobs, who is an activist who's done solidarity work in Israel and Palestine and is a descendant of Holocaust survivors herself. And it was built in a way that captured people's land and olive groves on the Israeli side of the wall to prevent 
Palestinians from accessing and continuing farm work. And in other villages in the West Bank, on the Palestinian side of the separation fence, there are neighbouring Israeli settlements that expand and appropriate Palestinian farmland, preventing locals' access and usurping village lands. There are also fairly regular arson attacks on orchards and olive groves from Israeli settlers in the West Bank. And many of these villages have seen popular demonstrations by villagers to oppose land expropriation and settlement expansion. And the familiar tale of dispossession via colonisation has spurned a long and deep solidarity movement between First Nations Australians and Palestinians. Here's Bo Spiram, a Gamilaray and Kumar activist and podcaster. But also, you know, uh, there's been a lot of solidarity uh, with Palestinian communities from Blackfellas and the 70s and the 80s uh, when it was the PLO struggling as well blackfellas understanding you know the importance of witnessing an unjust genocide that is happening you know not just there but in many many places around the world uh, the reason why we feel so closely and so heartfelt towards uh, Palestinian community is because of apartheid regime that they're sort of under and the relationship that we have with many other countries that where uh, um, their policies, uh, favour, you know, the the elites and 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 not um, uh, the the people on the ground and all the indigenous folks as well. So, and just like in Australia, so often those elites are linked to the fossil fuel industry and the military industrial complex. Here's Pablo Bright again. One is our favourite friend of far right governments everywhere, the Adani Corporation, which many of us are invested in through our superannuation. Adani is a major owner of the Haifa port. It was privatized, I think, early this year or late last year. And it manufactures weapons, including drones, assault rifles, sniper rifles, and machine guns um, for Israeli arms companies for use by the Israeli army. We can see that the colonial extractivist mindset that underpins so much of the environmental degradation we see is the same mindset that is driving a large part of war raging on this planet. But beyond the common foe, there are direct environmental effects, and they affect everything in the biosphere, humans, plants, and animals alike. So jump onto the Stop Adani social media and see how you can take action to save indigenous land here and abroad from coal weapons of war and the extractivist approach to the environment. Not just in the context of Palestine, but in the context of all indigenous peoples, the land back movement is necessarily a climate justice movement. And the climate justice movement also, I believe, is essentially a land back movement because it's the process of colonization has made it possible. Your view of the world, your ideology was not right. It was not working. Precisely. You know, I, that's precisely the reason I was shocked because I've been going for 40 years or more with very considerable evidence that it was working exceptionally well. Many climate justice activists and grassroots groups have started to embrace this idea that war environment are intrinsically linked and that solidarity can extend to things beyond just fossil fuels or the way that we eat or the car that we drive. But in Australia, the larger environmental NGOs seem to be silent on the issue of war. And the sophistication that can be seen within the peace movement internationally and some environment groups doesn't seem to have arrived on shore in Australia. Here's Fahima Badrul-Husham from the Muslim Collective, who is an architect and climate justice campaigner, and was also MC of the webinar that we have been hearing from. 
And because a lot of us here are concerned about greenhouse gas emissions, initial estimates indicate that the carbon emissions from IDF's active warfare, 60 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent in just the first month of the war. Contrast this with Israel's reported emissions for the whole of 2021 is 54 million tonnes. In 2008, Oil Change International released a report titled A Climate of War, The War in Iraq and Global Warming. The report looked at not only the greenhouse gas emissions of the Iraq war, which were quite staggering, but also the opportunity costs that were involved in fighting the war rather than climate change. We learned that over the years, at least 141 million metric tonnes of CO2 was released. That's the equivalence of almost 25 million cars in one year. And much mystery shrouds what the carbon bootprint of any military is. So I phoned in a comrade to unpack what was going on here. My name is Elise West. I'm the Executive Officer of the Medical Association for Prevention of War. I'm on Wondery Warong Burung land um, in Victoria. And in thinking about the interlinkage between war and climate issues, I wondered, what is the carbon bootprint of the Australian Defence Force? So there is no data on the Australian Defence Force's military greenhouse gas emissions from 2012. I think that was probably a, a broader kind of political shift. But I will note that even, even today when there is greater interest in tracking greenhouse gas emissions, the Australian Defence Force remains exempt from any efforts to reduce its carbon emissions. So the Australian Public Service has a policy that's committed to net zero, but the Defence Force and the security agencies are named as being exempt from those targets for security reasons. So in that sense, the contribution of the ADF and the agencies to Australia's security is seen to be more important than its contribution to our climate devastation. Prior to 2012, when there was ADF data around carbon emissions, Australian defence emissions totaled 66% of the Australian government's emissions. What we have seen is a securitisation of the climate issue, where climate change is seen as a potential driver for more war. And despite the Defence Force saying it has initiated a range of investments to drive a 43% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030 and net zero by 2040, where is the plan? Spoiler, it's a secret. Or perhaps it doesn't exist. So then, what about our international obligations? Surely the whole world would be reporting their military emissions as a part of their obligations under COP agreements. At the very highest level, reporting of emissions from military installations and operations is voluntary. It's not mandatory to report those to the UNFCCC. Australia does report some emissions, but the, the quality of the reporting is very poor and it's very difficult to disaggregate military emissions from other emissions. I think the military instinct towards secrecy is a major barrier. There's concern that reporting greenhouse gas emissions will reveal something about the nature of capabilities or operations and so forth. But that argument has been around for a while and it was the primary one that was a barrier to developments in Kyoto. So the United States in particular was, was quite adamant that military greenhouse gas emissions could not be reported because of um, secrecy concerns. But updates in the way that emissions are calculated and assessed. Analysts say that there is there's a ways around that. 
Um, but I think there's also a reluctance to um, constrain military capability. Um, often when you see discussions about the need to contain military greenhouse gas emissions, there's always a sort of proviso of whilst meaning capability, you know, without constraining, you know, the military's ability to perform. So I think there is a, a nervousness about losing the ability to project lethal force by adopting technologies that, that you know, that emit less emissions. According to Scientists for Global Responsibility, the world militaries emit a total of 5.5% of global emissions. In 2009, rich countries agreed to spend $100 billion on climate development in poorer countries. That would represent a reallocation of approximately 5% of global military budgets. But hey, why would we want to take climate action when we could just bomb a country instead? Self-proclaimed global military leaders, the United States, are a major polluter. It has been estimated that the global war on terror since 2001 has produced 1.2 billion metric tonnes of greenhouse gases. And the US Army and military itself produce 51 million metric tonnes of CO2 every year. But again, these are estimates. So why is the military not accountable for its emissions? It's a really good question. I wish more people were asking. A colonial mindset of extractivism, climate change, war and its effect on the environment. You're listening to Earth Matters. to the show via Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcasting platform, then why not rate and review us? Help us spread the word. Why? Because the earth matters. The first thing I think about is the incredible destructive power of war on the environment. War obviously destroys um, built environments, natural environments. It has short and medium and long-term consequences. I think we all remember the, the side of the burning oil wells when the Iraqi army was leaving Kuwait. And in fact, you know, that landscape has never recovered from, from that war. Contamination of the land can come in many forms via militaristic operations. And despite denials of the use of uranium-depleted weapons in Gaza, there has been historic speculation that the Israeli army has used uranium-depleted weapons in Gaza. And we did just see the US military supply the Ukrainian army with such weapons. And those anti-tank rounds are known to have devastating and long-lasting effects. But equally, or if not worse, is the use of white phosphorus. There was reports of white phosphorus being used in Gaza, which is thought 
to break down into very toxic compounds. I mean, apart from its immediate extremely harmful effects on, on people, it can settle into the soil and continue to break down and essentially prevent any living thing from, from ever growing in that, in that spot again. The 2013 Friends of the Earth report I mentioned at the beginning of the show contains a case study on Om Kalhir. It's a rural village located in the South Hebron Hills area of the occupied West Bank that is engaged in the struggle for access to water. Evicted from their lands in the 1948 occupation by Israel, the community had to purchase land for the village. The 150 village households are entirely dependent on their livestock and they have no access to water, networks or electricity. Omahel Keher is surrounded by an ever-expanding illegal Israeli settlement and its poultry factory farms. The Israeli settlement water pipes pass through the village and deliver some 300 litres of water per person per day to the illegal Israeli settlers. Meanwhile, Palestinian families receive some 15 litres of water per person per day, which must be transported by donkeys or by hand over long distances. Access to water remains a critical issue for Palestinians, and the current war with Israel has only exacerbated that problem. The intense bombing campaign, and also the use of weapons like white phosphorus mentioned before, have led to contamination of water, which is so critical not only for human life, but critical for the environment as well. So in places like Palestine at the moment, for example, where sanitation infrastructure has been destroyed and raw sewage is leaching into drinking water, into the sea. So I think the first, the first thing that comes to me is that incredible destructive impact of war on the natural environment from which there is no easy recovery. I think it will take a while for the full extent of the attack on Gaza to become apparent. I would say that there were pre-existing environmental issues in Gaza and across Palestine that are mainly connected to being under belligerent occupation, meaning that there is very little control over things like water resources, land use, forest use, environmental governance, desertification, air quality, etc. So I would say that Palestine generally was already in a fairly fragile environmental state and after these many weeks of attack it's quite devastating to think about the position that it finds itself in now. A state of shock, disbelief. Justice for Palestine and a safe climate. I think it's very clear what needs to happen in Gaza right now. There needs to be a permanent ceasefire. urgency of a lasting permanency in Gaza and that getting our government to call on Israel to do that should be our number one priority right now.
there's lots of thank yous to get through today for the show that we just heard about war in the environment, taking a look at Palestine and the situation in Gaza at the moment. I want to thank Fahima, Badrul Hisham, Bo Spiram, Asil Taya, Pablo Great, Damia Jacobs and Rehab Charida. And they were all the speakers that we heard from the webinar put together by ActionAid, Democracy in Colour, Friends of the Earth, Muslim Collective, the Tipping Point and the 350.org crew. Big thanks to them. Big thanks to Mick McGrath as well for your help. Also, I want to thank Elise West from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. It was great to talk to her about all those things as well. And if you have missed any of the show and you want to listen back or you want to share this out with other people who you know in your network as well, you can check us out at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters where you can find all the podcasts of all the shows that we've done. And also you can check us out at wherever you get your favorite podcast from. You know, there's all the things, the Googles, the Apples, the Spotify's and all that sort of stuff. So go there and rate us while you're there because it always helps to get the word out. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Phil Evans. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram. That's all the time we have for today, but do tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories on Earth Matters.